Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This particular message is one that's been stirring inside of me for years. However, it's, uh, it's come out in different forms. For those of you that know Eric Ludy, you'll recognize different themes in this because they s- slip out in different messages. I had a message quite a few years ago called Extraordinary Courage. I had a message called Christian Valor. I had a message called Fearless. I had a message called We Will Not Fear. But then you could even go into messages like Immovable. Uh, I had a message. Did I have a message called Untouchable? It seems like I did, but I don't. Unstoppable. I remember I had that one. Uh, all of these are sort of a theme. This is something that God has been cultivating inside of me for a long time, and that is the position of the believer and how to truly walk in the strength that is available to us at the cross. And it's one of those things where many of us, we know that there is strength for the Christian, we just don't have it. And so we esteem it, and oftentimes we think that talking about it is the equivalent to having it or to utilizing it. Sort of like getting together and talking about prayer, you feel like you prayed. Or talking about scriptures in the Bible, you feel like you're living them. And that subtle disconnect can lead to the difference between Christianity and something else. Uh, As C.T. Studd calls it, otherwise Christians. In other words, they're Christians that aren't really Christians. They talk it, they have the look of it, but they're not functionally, actively engaged in the life of Christ. Who is the life of a Christian? If our life isn't Christ, if our life can be explained by any other thing, then we're not functionally Christians. And so I'm very interested in functionally being a Christian. As I've oftentimes said in discipleship, if I gave you a whole bunch of good information, but all it did is reside in your head and it never dropped down and changed your life, I'm actually doing you no good. If if truth doesn't change us, if it can't be put into the tire tread level of our life and move us forward, it's useless, it's impotent. Christianity must change a life. To recognize a true Christian, you recognize that their life cannot be explained in terms of what a human can do, what a human can pull off. It has to be that you can only explain that life in terms of that life must know God. Or another way of saying it is, there must be a God in the universe because how do you explain that life? Most of us live lives that can be explained with human terminology. Well, yeah, I mean, a Buddhist, what really bothered me the other day when I heard that there's a Buddhist that's proclaimed as the happiest man in the world. I don't know who shared that with me, but it really got me riled up. There is no way that a Buddhist should be the happiest man in the world, Uh, a title that I am currently seeking. That's why you see me uh, uh, a little riled by that one. But the point being, we as Christians have access into the very real throne room of grace. A Buddhist has access, but only via the blood of Jesus. In other words, he has to be converted from his Buddhism. We as Christians have 
unimpaired access to everything that is needed and requisite to live the fullest, most quintessential picture of what a human life is supposed to look like, which is Jesus Christ. There is no blockage. We have, by faith, access into that throne room. And so I want to begin to enunciate one of the key qualities that begins to emerge in the Christian life when we enter into that throne room of grace. It's ironic because it says boldly enter, and the quality I want to introduce you to is boldness. So to enter, to get the boldness, you need to boldly enter. So we need boldness even to enter to get the boldness. The Cure for Cowardice is the name of this message. A study in spiritual boldness. It's a two-part series. Session one, the gospel of the fearless. I have, the, the whole idea of being unafraid, of being fearless, is one that as a man, and I don't know how, I'm guessing that women are very attracted to the concept too, but we as men, there is a certain dimension of manliness that is oftentimes derived from the culture, but it also has a, it's a shadow or it's, it's a derivative of a real heavenly construct, and that is that we do not retreat. When we are in the midst of battle and bullets are flying, we do not scream for mommy and run. We boldly stand and lay down our lives gladly for the cause that we've been assigned. And yet all of us can esteem courage, we can esteem dauntlessness, we can esteem intrepidity. However, it's not something that just comes naturally to us. When we pop out of our mother's womb, we just aren't naturally fearless. Now, there's certain kinds of fearlessness that we esteem in the world today that can actually be derived through work ethic, through discipline, and through uh, training of the body and the psyche of a man or a woman. You can actually discipline your life to overcome certain fears. However, what I want to introduce you to is not something that can be handled or gained in and through human diligence and training. It is something that is gained through impartation via the Holy Spirit of God. And it is something that is only gained by Christians via the cross. That's what I want to introduce you to today. So when I talk about boldness, you can think about bold people. You can think about a, uh, a linebacker who, in the, in the game of football who's willing to rush straight through uh, a gap in the line and uh, you know, go against a 350-pound lineman. I mean, that's craziness. Or how about a strong safety who's one-third the size doing it? It's like, that, that's insanity. And no, it's, 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 it's a human thing, and some guys have it. They, have, they don't even care if they die in the process. But that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about what a football player could have, what a commando in the military could have. I'm talking about something that only a Christian can possess. I was sitting in Starbucks yesterday putting the finishing touches to this message, and I was just pondering this. And I was saying, most people think of me as a rather bold man. And yet, when I think of myself, I would not give you the description of bold. I see my cowardice. I know where I'm not bold. But I'm not going to just come up always and share those areas with you. I don't want you to play upon that and, you know, just know all those weak points. I want to have you think of me as always bold. And so, for instance, I'll just give you a for instance. Sitting in Starbucks, I was just pondering. I was looking around and saying, so, Eric, if the Spirit of God said, stand up right now and boldly proclaim the gospel, Eric, go. 
It's like, well, God, you know, I, I would gladly do that, but it's just, I don't sense that you're telling me to do it. I will have the same justifications that you will. In other words, there's a social rightness and appropriateness that we all know, and it governs our behavior far more than we realize. When I'm up in front of you in a church situation, boldness is requisite, but it's also a lot easier than in Starbucks. So I want you to recognize that just because I'm bold in a pulpit doesn't necessarily make me bold in every situation. Eric Ludi needs the same thing that's in this message that you do. Okay, so don't give me undue pats on the back because I'm bold in the pulpit. This is a funny-looking pulpit, isn't it? The gospel of the fearless. What exactly is boldness? The, there's a Greek word called parisia, which is utilized 31 times, which is actually a lot of repetitions for a word in the Greek. You know, there are certain words that we'll teach on as pastors that are used once in the entire Bible, and yet they're still very significant. So every use of a word enunciates the gospel of Jesus Christ, This word is used 31 times. It's typically translated bold, boldness, boldly. That's the idea behind it. It also is translated as confidence. But this is the thing. This is the substance. It's parisia. And so it's based in, the the etymology is based in two roots. One is pas and the other is rhesus, which means all and speech, which is a strange thing. When we think of boldness, we don't think of the word all and speech. However, what it means is there is nothing that is hindered from being said. If, in other words, there's a free-flowing channel. All speech can be spoken. Anything that needs to be spoken will be spoken. Why? Because there's boldness presence, present. Now, what we typically have is not all speech. We have some speech. Well, that's not boldness. In other words, I will share certain things. And there's certain things as a pastor that I know I'm not supposed to say. Now, you would agree with what I would say. However, there's something recording me back there. And if it gets passed around, I'm a dead man in this culture. And so as a result, boldness is translated very differently when you begin to think of the global sense of all speech. When we stand up in the Jewish culture and to declare that your eyes were healed by Jesus Christ, that will actually remove you from the synagogue. It will actually put a blandishment on your reputation and your family. You will not be allowed in the synagogue, which is the ultimate statement of sequestration and and rejection from a culture. So are you going to say it? You might know that Jesus healed you. You might know that Jesus healed the man, but you're not going to say it. We always look back and we cluck our tongues. We say, what's wrong with these people? Just say it. It's not that big of a deal. I'll I'll get excommunicated from the synagogue. Doesn't sound like a big deal to me. It's a huge deal. It's the same issue of being deemed the scourge in our society. Being the blandishment in our society, we want to be liked. Boldness involves a freedom of speech that we would be willing to heed the Spirit of God in what the Spirit of God is saying, our tongue will agree, and we are willing to speak it. Now, that's just what the word means. It has a broader understanding when it's utilized in Scripture. So, I'm going to give you the first definition. I'm going to give you two definitions. There's actually three definitions for this word, but the third one is plain spoken. Those are straightforward speaking. If you speak boldly or with parisia, that means you're speaking clearly. Jesus spoke clearly when he didn't speak in parables any longer. So that was another form of boldness, or it was just translated a little differently, plainly. So the concept is all speech or all words. Now, we know the word of God. 
It is Jesus. And we know the word of God in text is actually known as scripture, or we know it as the Bible. And so as a result, we are willing and and freeing our spirit and our soul to enunciate and to proclaim and to live all the words. All of it. So unhindered speech, plain and clear communication that is shockingly straightforward and uncomfortably truthful. Now, a lot of us get mixed up the idea of boldness and rudeness. God is not rude. You know that it says love is not rude? It's actually one of the qualities of God. He is love and he is not rude. So boldness isn't rudeness. It is the willingness to speak that which is love. And at times, love is very uncomfortable for people. And when you say that they are dying and going to hell, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't translate in our culture. It is deemed mean-spirited. And yet, it is loving. And so that boldness is a willingness to speak that which God is speaking. Here's the second one. All the commands, all the word. So remember where the idea is all and speech. So we're going to tie that with all the word of God, all of Jesus. This is the concept of boldness. We are willing to allow the fullness of the life of Christ in and through these bodies or through these bodies as a channel. Will it get us killed? Likely. In other words, how was Jesus treated? When that boldness came through Jesus Christ, when as a vessel he allowed the fullness of the Father to be expressed, what happened to him? Well, he was crucified. He was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was scourged. It was a bad story, right? Well, it's our salvation. You see, the way in which the spirit of this world reacts to all the word of God is pretty serious, which is why many of us curb boldness. We want it in certain situations, but we don't really want it on God's terms. Because God asks us to be bold in all situations, which means the Spirit of God has full license to exhibit, to declare, and to communicate what is on the heart of God in any and all circumstances. So all the commands, all the word. Unhindered in living, going, doing, preaching, teaching, and serving. See, a lot of us are thinking just words spoken, which is good because that's what the word parisia means, all words. However, if you were to understand it's all of Jesus, it's all of the life of Christ, if he's going to call you to Pakistan, for instance, have you ever noticed that some of us struggle with boldness? You could be the, I mean, the guy marked by boldness, everyone's patting you on the back, but then you hear the still small voice that says, Pakistan, and you suddenly don't feel very bold. You see, This is the concept of unhindered in living, going, doing, preaching, teaching, and serving. Fearless, unafraid, confident, and cheerfully courageous is the concept. This is actually part of the definition of boldness. And if you're starting to notice some cowardliness inside of you, it's okay. You should notice it. You see, a lot of us are trying to derive this in and through our own willpower. I know how this works because I've dealt with it my entire life. I esteem manliness, and so I try and rise up to be a man. And then I, I understand boldness, and so I'm bold in certain areas, and people are patting me on the back going, Eric, wow, you're a man. And I know those moments when I shy away, when I shrink back. I know them. Just because I don't like to just get up and bark about them all the time, I know them and I recognize the cowardliness in my own soul. There is still a self-preservation that I have, and it's an instinct within me, and right when I think it's gone, God reminds me afresh. Eric, is this something you're trying to drum up inside of you? Boldness does not come from something I can conjure up. A Muslim can be bold. 
like the world. But a Muslim cannot be bold like Christ. I can be because I know Christ and have access under the cross. And that's the sort of boldness that I'm interested in talking about. So I want to give you some different definitions for boldness. All, they're all the same concept, but just to give you sort of a fresh lens on this. No longer being impaired by the instinct of human self-preservation. Could you imagine, just dream for a second, of not having that instinct to self-preserve. See, when you're called to Pakistan or North Korea, Afghanistan, you could fill in the blanks, uh, there's various spots on earth that just sort of mean the death of a Christian. It's like, well, at least you, I mean, to go to, there's a lot of hard places in the world that you can go, but I mean, you're, you at least know that you're probably going to live in the process. It might be difficult being there, but then there's other spots. It's like, well, that's just suicide. You see, you have an instinct of self-preservation. If you look at the lives of the early Christians, the apostles, they did not have this self-preservation. They did that which was crazy. They went straight in and just did it, knowing full well that it would cost them their lives. And every single one of them was martyred. And you could say, what about John the Apostle? He was thrown into a vat of boiling oil and pulled out unscathed. I would still say he got it. You see, are you willing to be bold? Set free from the shackles of what ifs. Oh, we are plagued by what ifs. What if this happens, though? If I say this, what if this happens? If I did this, if I went there, if I actually went up to that door and rang the doorbell, what if they did this? What if they laughed at me? We're plagued by this. How about being set free from those shackles? Could you imagine no longer having to wear that? See, most of us don't even, have ever even thought of a life free from such hindrances. We just think it comes with the package of humanity. It does, but it doesn't come with Christianity. You see, that is a carry-along from our past life. You see, we have never been told clearly, let the shackles go. You have boldness in Christ Jesus. Excitement for danger. How about that one? Excitement for danger. All right, is it, is it challenging? And someone's sheepish. They don't want to tell you that it's dangerous. You're like, is it, is it dangerous? Just tell me. Like, yes, it is dangerous. Good. Whew. All right, let's go. Seeing difficulty as opportunity. You know when you see the faithfulness of God? In and through difficulty. And so the bold man or woman of God actually looks at difficulty as opportunity. Fearless and unintimidated, shrugging shoulders at the boasts of pain and suffering. Why do you not want to be put in prison and tortured? Well, I mean, isn't it obvious, Eric, why I wouldn't want that? Yes, I understand the human dimension of it. Did you know that Christians throughout the ages have not feared it? And they have boldly entered into prison cells and boldly looked at their captors and their torturers and smiled back at them? So do what you will. And they loved even during the torture. They gave the gospel back. They treated it as their mission field and they treated the torturer as the one that they were witnessing to. Who is this way? Christians. Emptying death of its sting and replacing it with thrill. Could you imagine if when you thought of death, you thought of thrill instead of sting? Instead of what, what would happen? What would that be like? Oh no, if I died... Yeah, if you died, Paul says it's gain. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. This is the attitude of the Christian. We do not fear death. If anything, we look forward to it. We do not try and create our death. However, we are not afraid of death. Death has no victory. It has no sting in it. Haven't you heard the gospel? 
Could you imagine being free from these things and being able to live in whatever manner Jesus would call you without those hindrances of what-ifs and self-preservation? So I'm just saying, let's dream. Does God fulfill that dream? Does he answer that desire of the soul? Most of us have never allowed ourselves to dream because it's so far-fetched and you have tried and you've dug down deep into your own abilities and you've not been able to overcome. But you can find an answer at the cross. A proof of salvation. This is a very, very interesting scripture in Philippians 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, says Paul, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. Now, this is a little strange, but boldness, when it is present in the Christian life, is actually an evidence of something. It is called a proof. It's a proof, and so many of us, when we look at this grammatically, see that it's a proof of perdition. But that is to those that are opposing us. It is a proof to them of something, but it also speaks the language of heaven, and it's a proof to you of something. It is a proof to you of salvation. You see, God has given you an evidence in your soul that you are his. And that is that you actually have boldness. As a Christian, suddenly you have something. It is actually an evidence or it's a proof. The smell of fear, a quick study in the law of the jungle. Uh, For whatever reason, I I go through different seasons. I, I told you a few months back that I was studying the house church movement in China. Now I've been going through like radical missionary stories. The more radical, the more interested I've been, it seems. And so there are all sorts of extreme uh, missionary ones where they're going into the places that Eric Ludy is not interested in being called. No, I'm called to Ellerslie. God, I'm really busy here. Uh, And so to boldly read these stories and to stare them in the face and say, God, may there be no reticence within. I have your shed blood. There is no reason that I would cower. There is no reason that I would try and excuse I am your vessel. If you want me here in Windsor, I'll be here in Windsor. If you want me there, I'll go there. And so I have this whole series that I've been going through. A lot of them have been jungle ones. Jungle ones have some of the most intriguing stories associated with them because you have tribes that are unreached. They're barbaric, oftentimes cannibalistic. They are of the utmost... uh, reproach, disgusting, heinous in their actions. I mean, satanic culture, basically. Uh, Totally absent of light, and there's only the presence of that which is dark. And so some of the most extraordinary stories come out, but what's interesting is, have you guys ever heard of that statement that animals can smell fear? So if you're out in the wilds and a a mountain lion is in front of you, then they can smell fear. Uh, And I, I did some study on that, and Technically, it's not a, a smell that's, you know, that hits, uh, I, don't, I don't know even how to describe it, if olfactory, uh, all these different terms, but it's not like a smell, like a scent, but it's, a, it's something that is read in and through body language, and so you can see it, and the concept is like a smell where you can sniff the fact that someone has fear, and it actually emboldens, get this, it emboldens the animal because they recognize certain attributes of your behavior which cause them to believe that they can win in a fight. And so they will attack based on your fear. The enemy is the exact same way. 
And so what you see in the jungles and all these missionary stories is the missionaries that were successful went in boldly. And they were unafraid. And their lack of fear and trepidation actually struck fear in these cannibalistic tribes. And these tribes recognized that the man that is most bold has the most bold God. And they bent their knee to the more bold God, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's truly remarkable. I've seen this pattern because I've, I've read just tons of stories. And so a quick study in the law of the jungle, the smell of fear. Woe to the one that flinches first. There's so many different stories where these men and women would be in situations where they would be intimidated. The first thing that these tribes will do is test your metal. They will come right up to you with all their barbarity in full sway, all their feathers and so cocksure. It's sort of like the, the peacock that spreads the feathers. They are making their statement. I mean, Mary Slusser, one of my favorite statements, uh, small little Scottish woman. I don't know if she even reached five feet. And she is standing before some of the, I mean, none of the missionaries on the coast would ever go inland. She was like the first one to bravely go where no man had gone before. Literally, the only one that had ever traversed interior Africa up to that point in time was David Livingston. No woman had ever dreamed of going in. And Mary Slessor goes straight in and all the bluster and the bluff of the enemy came out. And she literally stared it back and says, is that all you got? Because I got God. I mean, it's amazing. And the, the tribes literally had no answer for it. And they were struck with fear. It was a proof to them that they were actually in danger of standing against the true God. The boldest man has the boldest God. Now, so you can imagine if you were being sent off right now into the dangers, the trials of some uh, jungle environment, how are you going to fare? How are you facing the challenges in your life now? Do you have even a scrap of fear? You see, the enemy will play upon your anxiety. If he senses it, he'll play upon it. And so many of us have been a, the dietary choice for the enemy as of late, and we have been his lunch, because we have not walked in the strength and the power that is available to us at the cross. We have not picked up the boldness. Instead, we have let it sit. It's sort of like having the enemy come up to us and continue to bop us in the nose when we have the weapon of choice that can slice and dice the enemy. It's sitting at our ankle. Pick it up and begin to use it. You do not need to be afraid. You have the God of the universe. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. No weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, it shall not come nigh you. You are held in the hollow of his hand. Can anything stop the Almighty? No is the answer. It's called the shield of faith. And when you hold up that shield of faith, it quells all the fiery darts of the evil one. Do not allow the fiery darts of the evil one to take you down. Hold up your confidence, your boldness in Jesus Christ and begin to move forward. The evidence to the ungodly. Now, this is an interesting way of looking at it, but when we were, I was reading the scripture in Philippians 1 a little earlier, of talking about that it's a proof even to us. Our boldness is a statement. It's a statement to our souls that we have been changed because we know ourselves. We would not stand in this situation. We would have not ever proclaimed this. I can't believe I'm here on a street corner actually talking right now. You see, when we see that boldness, when we witness it in our life, it's a proof of our salvation 
that is given to us by God, but God is also giving a proof to our enemies. When we stand in boldness, it's actually a witness of the gospel to their souls. So let's, let's just look at this. Not in any way terrified by your adversary. So your adversary is coming against you, whether it's with uh, abusive terminology, abusive behavior, and striking you, whether it's stealing from you, mocking you, I, it doesn't matter what it is. You are being taunted, you are being attacked. How you handle it, are you terrified? Are you afraid? When you stand unafraid in those moments with the boldness of Jesus Christ, it's amazing, but it says, which is to them a proof of perdition. It is actually an evidence to them that they're on the wrong side of the equation. They actually are standing against the almighty God. And it is an awakening signal to their soul. This is what I see in all these jungle missionary stories. It is literally, it strikes terror in these men. These, these jungle men are unafraid. And I'm going to go into that in just a second. And you would say, wow, what men they are. I mean, we are terrified here in America at the slightest things. Uh, and yet, you know, Dow Jones industrial average drops. And people start jumping from windows in America. Over there, they go straight into battle and they look forward to it. They do not fear arrows flying at them. They just duck out of the way. It's truly amazing to see how these jungle savages are trained and raised. They're raised to be fearless, and yet they fear one thing. They fear the Christian who enters their midst and is unafraid. It is a proof to them that they are wrong, that they have a need for what that man or that woman possesses. It's just the way it works. How is boldness formed? Can you steal yourself? I like the word steal. It means to make strong or to make bold, to make confident. Can you make yourself bold? You see, I have tried for years of my life to make myself courageous, daring, and bold. And in certain areas, it works. There's certain things that I have done that actually have made me stronger. And I am, for instance, socially, when I would drive down the road, I remember in college I was working on this. I am going to be bold socially. So I'm going to just come up to people and stick out my hand, knowing full well that they may not respond and I may be standing there awkwardly. I don't care. I'm going to take the risk. And so it's a risk, social risk, that I begin to take. I drive down the road in South Denver where no one waves, and I would wave at everyone, and I'd smile. And I would get about one in ten people. Most people would be like, huh, what? And they'd feel awkward wave after about 10 minutes after they passed me. It's like, that doesn't count. You have to wave at the time. You see me wave, you wave back. Come on, buddy. However, it was a risk. And guess what? I'm a very bold man socially now. I'll come right up to someone and start talking with them in any situation. I could enter a church where I know no one in it and I am not uncomfortable. I'll come straight up to people and stick out my hand and say, hi. And they actually feel more awkward for me. It's like, you don't belong here. Yeah, I know. How are you doing? And where did that come from? That came from training and practice, but I'm not talking, that's not spiritual boldness necessarily. That is a physical or practical or psychological boldness that I trained in growing up. Any, all of you should try it. It's great. I'll teach my kids in the same thing, but there's a difference between that and what I'm talking about today. Because I could boldly enter an environment, stick out my hand and feel completely comfortable, but then cower when it comes to speaking to their souls precisely what they need to hear that day. And I could stop in the moment knowing that someone whispered to me right before I went on saying, yeah, the last guy that got up and said anything like this, boy, they ran him out of town on the rails. And so guess what? I can get up and have that thought pass through my mind 
And when I could bring the heat of the Spirit of God to a statement I'm making, I back off. That's cowardliness. You see, you need something spiritual to be able to bring what the Spirit of God needs to speak. To bring what men need to speak to is not something that demands the Spirit of God. But to bring what God needs to speak in the way God would speak, it demands spiritual substance. So does a Christian make himself bold? Do we talk ourselves into this state of mind? Is this merely a psychological exercise of the will? The kind of boldness that I'm referring to today is not an exercise of the will, even though the will must be in agreement with it. It is actually the impartation that we receive from God. The six-year-old and the spear. So this is just an illustration of how in the savage lands uh, the young boys are prepared. They are cut into manhood at a very young age, and they are trained from five or six how to be men. And they witness gruesome deaths. They witness, the, uh, they witness all the punishments of evil. They witness all sorts of things up close. A lot of young kids will even play with their, t- their toys or human skulls. In other words, this is not a healthy culture. And so you have this one little boy is brought into the man house, and he is set against a wall, and he is told that he cannot flinch, and he must never be afraid, that a true uh, yolly a man would never blush in the face of danger. And so the man takes a spear and throws it at his head without warning. And the boy runs off crying to his father, screaming in terror. They set the boy back in place, and they do it again. Right at his head. These men are experts with their spears, and they know they will not hit him. But the boy has to learn that if he stands still, he is learning manhood. Could you imagine if we were trained with a spear being thrown at our head at the age of five? Yeah, you can understand why at the age of 40, these men do not flinch when spears are being thrown at them. This is how they were raised. And yes, that is very impressive, I have to admit. But I'm talking about something that is greater than that. Now, most of us as men would love to just have that. I'm talking about something that is even greater. And it's spiritual in its import. Dub and the roller coaster. So we were down in uh, Florida, and the very last day of our trip, uh, Dub Hudson and I went to Legoland. It was a big event. And uh, so Dub is not necessarily inclined towards roller coasters. He, he talks quite big you know, about uh, race cars. He wants to be a race car driver. He wants to be a policeman. He wants to be uh, a military guy. And he's always like, can you die doing that? And I go, oh, yeah. And he goes, yeah, that's what I want to be. But then you get him to a roller coaster, and his behavior is quite different. And so he'll come up with a thousand excuses, like, we could do that later. When does the park close? And I say, it closes at five. He goes, we could do that maybe around then. Uh, And so it was really cute as we were going through this, because Hudson's like, just wants to go on roller coasters, and Dub didn't want to go on roller coasters. There was a nice little ride over here that went in a boat and floated around. He was more interested in that one. And so Dub finally agreed to go on a roller coaster, and it was his first roller coaster, and he wasn't doing too well throughout it. I'll just put it that way. I was sitting next to him. He was screaming. Uh, and so I was like, yay, this is fun. And he was like, ah. <laughs> and so as we worked through this, at the very end of it, he began to laugh. He went from screaming to laughter. I don't know if any of you have been on a roller coaster and gone through the same emotion. But he, he, he started laughing. And then at the very end, he was, that was fun. And I was saying, what a... Uh, you know, a Jekyll and Hyde, that situation was. I mean, in literally a matter of seconds, he went from screaming 
to, uh, to laughing and saying it was his favorite thing, you know, favorite ride he's ever been on. And so that, then when we offered him another roller coaster, because there was four in the park, uh, he wasn't too excited about that. And uh, so, but the whole day was made up of these adventures with Dub and the roller coaster. And here's my quote to Dub. Roller coasters become fun when you take the moments you are afraid and you laugh during those very moments instead of crying. And you know, there's a spiritual truth in there. In moments when you would typically cry in life, if you learn to laugh, it changes everything about the situation. Now, I'm not promoting roller coasters. There's nothing about thrill rides that I'm going to say we should all start going on them. However, there's an interesting principle to this, and what I saw is Dubber was exercising this throughout the time, because there were times he just wanted to scream, and he was learning to begin to laugh. And he might not have wanted to get right back on it and do it again, but it was interesting because it changed his entire perspective when he would tell mama of what he did. And he would then say, I went on this roller coaster and it was so fun. And yet he screamed as he was going through it. So how in the world was that fun? And so as he began to go through it, like when he went on the coaster source the second time, do you know he laughed the entire time? And so in our spiritual life, we have a very similar issue. We are facing something that is not fun, and we want to justify why. Maybe at 5 o'clock, you know, we could, we could do that. I, I, I'm not ready for that right now. And there's a nice little floaty ride here that goes by some Lego elephants and Lego lions. That, that sounds fun. That's us. We want the cozy floaty ride. We don't want the... <laughs> ah, I could, could I be excused from that? I, I, couldn't someone else? There's other people that like those types of rides. In Christianity, all of us are assigned the difficult ones. Every single one of us is willing to say, God, you put me where you want me. So here's a question for you. Are boldly riding roller coasters and boldly suffering for Christ the same? I'm going to let you in on something. No. They're very different. Now, they have a similar makeup to them and the same principles that surround them. But someone in here could be like, oh, come on. Roller coasters are nothing. And yet you might be one of the greatest cowards in this room when it comes to standing for truth. You see, standing for truth, suffering for Jesus Christ, very different than jumping from high heights, bungee jumping, things like that, uh, and going on roller coasters, thrill rides, all that type of stuff, being tough on the football field with black eye paint. That is nothing. Child's play next to standing up for Jesus Christ in a generation that is counter to him. That is where the metal of the soul is truly proved. So the principle. Men can develop psychological boldness to face physical and emotional tests, but outside of divine impartation, I made it bold so you wouldn't miss it, men are unable to develop spiritual boldness to face spiritual tests. You see, you need something from outside yourself to pass the spiritual tests that God has for you. They're right in front of you right now. Every day we're facing spiritual tests. And many of you in here know that there are people that you left behind in the wake of your life this past week that should have heard the gospel. You know it. There is more that you should be doing for Jesus Christ, but there is a pulling back, there is a shrinking back, and a justification. You say, I'm not ready for that yet. Will you ever be ready for it? You see, we are pulling back and we're shrinking back. God has supplied us with something, and this is what I want us to be introduced to today. The spiritual nature of cowardice. So my confession, I already told you, but I'm a coward. Now, that's the equivalent of saying I'm a sinner. You see, when you understand your nature, 
When you understand how unlike God you are, it's actually a lot easier to say this. You see, when you're marked by pride and self-centeredness and you're sitting on the throne, you want everyone to think highly of you, it's very difficult to say something like, I'm a coward. Hi, my name is Eric Ludi, and I'm a coward. Now, when I say that, I might want to justify and say, well, I'm not a coward in every area. I like how Dan says it. If you're a coward in one area, you're a coward. If you lie in one area of your life, you're a liar. If you cheat in any area of your life, you're a cheater. Now, you might be honest in 99.9999999% of your life, but if you have 0.00001% of your life in which you lie, you're a liar. By definition, you lie. And so in our life, we all might as well face it, we got some issues. I, Eric Ludi, am a coward. Even if in some areas of my life I may show boldness and God has done a mighty work, there are still areas of my life when I see a reticence that still remains and I even want to coddle it because I'm afraid of where God may take me if I take my hands off of it. God, this is just for, for my own good. I need to just keep my hand on this. Eric, what did you just preach today? Well, I mean, uh, I'm not doing that. Yes, you are. Oh, I'm sorry. But God, please don't. You see, my hand is very quick to try and control the situation lest my life goes off the rails and I would end up in the jungles. Do That I would have to be a Mary Slesser. Oh, she lived out her whole life in the jungles. I, I, I'm not made for the jungles. Well, she grew up in proper society too. She was from Scotland. I'm, I'm from America. I'm not built for the, to call someone from the jungles to go to the jungles. If I measure myself by the points and moments in which I prove strong, I will always tend to overlook and strategically justify the many moments when I'm silent and weak. If I tell myself I'm bold because I'm bold in certain areas of my life, I'll oftentimes miss the fact that I'm not bold in other areas. And the key in this message is I want the Spirit of God to penetrate those areas of our life where we're not bold. I'm not going to ask you, are you bold in any of areas of your life? I'm sure you are. However, that's not what this message is about. It's allowing God to penetrate into all areas. Remember, all speech, parisia, all the word of God is being made manifest in and through our life. What is cowardice? It's the deadly condition native to the soul of every human born of the race of Adam. That's all of us. It fogs the mind when clarity is most needed. It shuts down the legs when rushing forward into danger is required. It clamps down the tongue when speaking truth is mandatory, and it acts like glue applied to the derriere when standing up is essential. For some reason, we just can't move when we most need to move. We can't speak when we most need to speak. When we're all together, we're like, I'll do that, I'll speak. What did Peter say? I'll die for you. And then what happens? When the day of testing comes, he was a coward. Peter, big, huge fisherman, strong man. You see, he needed something. He needed something that was gained and purchased at the cross and imparted to him at Pentecost. It's called the Holy Spirit, or the spirit of boldness is what it's called in Scripture. The spirit of boldness, that's the equivalent of saying the God of boldness or the life of boldness, the breath of boldness. You see, it comes from outside of Peter. And when Peter had the breath of boldness, what happened to him? Suddenly, the same guy who denied Christ stands up before the entire city and rebukes them and calls them under repentance. What happened to this guy? He was speaking all the words. 
And then, even when he's being led to his death, did you guys ever hear the story of Peter's death? It's extraordinary. They were going to crucify him, like Jesus. You're going to preach about Jesus, we'll crucify you too. And he says, I'm unworthy to be crucified as my Lord. And he was crucified upside down in honor of his Lord to not disparage the beauty and the sacredness of the way Jesus died and to not mix up his death with Christ. He chose a more painful death to declare all the word to the world around him. Boldness! Where did it come from? It didn't come from his pockets. Jesus proved what was in his pockets. He didn't have it. Peter, you don't have it, do you? I don't have it. But Peter, do you have it? I have it. I have it in Christ. I have it in the throne room of grace. I have everything I need. So Jesus says, boldly come in and get it. Boldly come. We can offset the effects of this malady, known as cowardice, by degrees in and through training, discipline, and practice. But we cannot ever completely overcome its paralyzing powers. And at the moments we most need to escape its control, it proves that it still holds us. And these are the moments that are of spiritual import. You see, when you think of yourself as bold, God must prove to you in the spiritual moments, and it all has to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, Back in the days of uh, early law, when Blackstone's commentaries were used often by lawyers, uh, and so Charles Finney was a lawyer, and he would always refer to Blackstone's commentaries, and to understand Blackstone's commentaries, you need the Bible. So he'd always have a Bible lingering around, but he wasn't even a Christian. And then he became a Christian, or was being awakened, I should say, by the Spirit of God. And someone walked into his office, and he found himself taking the Bible and hiding it. When we awaken to spiritual matters, it shows and proves the cowardice. It's like something is shining in us. God needs us to see it. Don't be afraid of it. Let him shine it in. You see, the Spirit of God is saying, you are not like me. I'm bold. You're not. And so in the spiritual matters, when Jesus is in the ascendant, when he's the issue, we can draw back. Even the name Jesus is an embarrassment in our culture to speak and to stand bold. Are you with that Jesus guy? Yes, I am. You don't say it that way. You just sort of go in the corner and go, yeah, I'm sort of with him too. You see, we want to be with him, but are we willing to be boldly with him? That is my king and my master and my Lord. Here I stand and I will not budge. You see, that's the substance of history, historic Christianity. The resolve of the early church, we will fear nothing. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. I, even I, am he who comforts you, says God. Who are you that should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? Very beginning, Acts, uh, the apostles are being dragged uh, before the priests, uh, Sanhedrin. They're being scourged, whipped, uh, told not to preach. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness, with parousia. What were they filled with in order to speak with boldness? It was the Holy Spirit. You see, the spirit of boldness must enter in. Otherwise, we are as Peter in those courts at the crucifixion scene. And we too will deny him. We do not have the spiritual muscle and moxie in and of ourselves to stand firm for Jesus Christ. 
Extraordinary Courage. This is just a picture of the early church. Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is the martyrdom of James the Great. This is the first apostolic martyr. So out of all the apostles, this is the first one to die. The story of James is so moving to me. But James is actually betrayed by a man into the hands uh, of the evil. And he is being brought to his death. As James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent. So his accuser witnessed something. The man who literally accuses him and is the one responsible for James' death witnesses something in James. What does he witness? He is brought to repent of his conduct. Why? By the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness. James is courageous. He's completely undaunted. There's no fear in him as he's being led to his death. And this man, it's a proof to him. It's a sign to his adversary. And that sign actually brings about a repentance and a softness in his soul so that he repents. And he fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian. The man becomes a Christian literally by witnessing the boldness, the fearlessness, and the undauntedness of James. That was James's gospel message. His gospel was boldness. Just living, he didn't even have to speak. He just lived it, and the man repented. And resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone, hence they were both beheaded at the same time. That man repented because of James's extraordinary courage and undauntedness, repents, seeks forgiveness, and dies with him. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink. Patience, so great. Patience is not as patience we would understand. It's not just like waiting in front of a microwave and not complaining. Patience, the word in the Greek is hupomeno, and it means to endure bravely and calmly the most horrific situations so that you are unmoved, you are fearless, you are confident, and you are calm throughout the process. Jesus faced the cross with patience. In other words, he didn't scream, he didn't cower, but with calmness and resolution, he approached it. And that boldness and that bravery was a sign of perdition to his adversaries and a sign of salvation to all of us. Look at the cross and you will see your salvation. Boldness. He did it. Patience so great. At the martyrdom of Faustines and Jovita, brothers and citizens of Brescia, their torments were so many and their patience so great. Their calm and their courage was so great that Calosarius, a pagan, beholding them, was struck with admiration and exclaimed in a kind of ecstasy, great is the God of the Christians, for which he was apprehended and suffered a similar faint. Isn't this interesting? When you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're going to begin to notice one similar thing. Throughout the strain of Christian history, it's called boldness. These men and women were unafraid of what the enemy would do to them. Completely unafraid. And what was it? The blood of the martyrs, or we could say the boldness of the martyrs, was the seed of the church. It's a sign of perdition. It's a sign that you are on the wrong side of the God issue. You are standing against the Almighty. Great is the God of the Christians. When you are bold, that is the statement that resounds in and through the culture in which you are bold. Great is the God of that man. Great is the God of that woman. The intrepidity of the sufferers. Intrepidity could be, synonym would be boldness, courage, uh, extraordinary uh, confidence, the intrepidity of the sufferers. The cruelties used in this persecution were such 
that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, etc. upon their points. Others were scourged until their sinews and veins lay bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths. And what does it say? It says that they were astonished. The, uh, the watchers were astonished at the boldness, at the courage, at the calm and the intrepidity, at the dauntless nature of those that were enduring such difficulty. I love it. Astonishing courage. Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. I'm giving you the secret to, modern, to missions. This is not just modern missions, missions. This has been the secret throughout the centuries. You're called, you go. And when you go, you go in the name of Jesus Christ. And when you go in the name of Jesus Christ, you carry his boldness. And when you carry his boldness, it is a sign unto those that will oppose you. And it is the key critical dimension and tool that God will use to awaken their soul to the fact that the God you serve is the God. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.